welcome back to season two of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. My name is Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. Today, we're joined by Eric Thurm and Chingy Nia of the Fanbyte series Behind Anime Lines to talk about episodes 9 and 10 of Paranoia Agent. We won't reveal any spoilers for later episodes, but we will point out foreshadowing when relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10, Rolling. Episode 9, Etc. Four housewives stand in the courtyard of an apartment complex sharing gossip. The topic of the day? None other than Shonen Bat. After waving off a story about Shonen Bat attacking guests at an inn, sound familiar? They instead spill tea close to home about a student in the complex who failed to pass his college entrance exam. Setting the pace for the rest of the episode, we're treated to a short retelling of the student's untimely end in the style of a psychological thriller. Another housewife chimes in with a different story, a domestic drama about an overbearing mother-in-law. In both cases, Shonen Bat arrives to bring the story to a violent close. Meanwhile, Mrs. Kamohara, the wife of a screenwriter new to the complex, is desperate to fit in. She tries her hand at storytelling, sharing a rumor of a doctor who tried to cover up a mix-up at an in vitro fertilization clinic. The rest of the housewives aren't impressed, jumping in to point out how implausible the story is before returning to tell each other their own equally implausible tales. The stories run the gamut, from a retelling of O. Henry's The Last Leaf to a rookie pitcher under pressure late in a game of baseball. Kamohara's feeling the pressure, too. No matter what kind of story she tells to the other women, she's shot down and scolded for lying. Dejected, she heads home only to find her husband mortally wounded by shonen bat in their apartment. Without even thinking to call an ambulance, she begs her bleeding-out hubby to tell her all the gory details of the attack. Episode 10 Mello Maromi A young boy in a baseball uniform carrying a bat wanders through Tokyo as the sun sets. Upset after losing a game, he sits at the edge of a river when Maromi appears with such suddenness that he rolls his bat into the river in surprise. Maromi gives him the by now familiar, just relax, spiel. This scene, still incomplete, is from Mellow Maromi, an anime being rushed onto the air to capitalize on Maromi mania. Production manager Naoyuki Saruta watches the voice actors record Maromi's catchphrase. Sometime later, he's driving the finished pilot episode to the station with only 30 minutes to air. As he drives, he recalls the episode's unusual production. Trouble starts when the screenwriter, hmm, falls ill. The already stretched-thin staff struggles to adjust to a tightening schedule. But don't worry, here's Hadamura to deliver a care package of Maromi pillows a gift that only Sarata seems to enjoy. As Sarata struggles to stay awake in the future, his past self is perpetually napping. Even worse, he's clumsy, 
losing hours of work by unplugging a power cable and setting off the office's sprinklers in a rage after being berated for the first fuck up. All the while, the more competent members of the staff are falling prey to bat blows to the back of the head. And hey, isn't that Shonen Bat skating along in Sarata's rear view mirror? Even with a mounting body count, Sarata can't be bothered to take his job seriously, destroying finished frames and neglecting to tell his coworkers about new deadlines. This is the last straw for Sarata's boss, Nobunaga Oda. After being fired, Saruta bludgeons Oda to death. With time running out and Shonen Bat hot on his heels, Saruta drives the blood-stained final cut to the station. Mello Maromi makes it there on time to air, but Saruta isn't so lucky. The executives that rush the tape inside are far too excited to notice that Saruta's corpse lies at the station's doorstep. At last, now that time itself has come to a halt, I am free to torment our listeners with an ad read. Ha! Nice try, Joseph, but you forgot one thing. The Human Instrumentality Podcast doesn't sell ad space. Think again, Ian. In my perfect world, the podcast is completely listener-supported. Why pummel them with corporate sponsors when I can use the listeners themselves you don't mean that's right ian we've now launched a patreon so if the listeners love our fine-tuned anime discourse they can support us for one dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash human instrumentality pod it had better come with monthly bonus episodes indeed it does and for five dollars a month i'll even read their names at the end of the episode it's totally optional of course that is if they don't want to be frozen in time forever not bad joseph but you forgot one thing oh what's that Nobody is going to visit any websites or sign up for any bonuses as long as time is frozen. You're trapped in this ad read with me. Touche. You've outplayed me once again. But I'll be back. And so will this ad read. Hopefully we all clapped somewhat. (laughs) In sync, it didn't look like it. But it didn't hopefully. look like it, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, well, the, yeah. it's the thought, the effort that counts. <laughs> Here's we the thing. Tried. I, and I've been doing this so long that our sync rate is really, really high. Um, Yet another they, sync rate joke. We can't stop making them. <laughs> There's there's going to be some Ava throwbacks in this episode. They've they've yet to send the extraterrestrial entity against us that will get Ian and I to uh, no longer like ourselves, at least uh, more than we already do. I have an Ava butt plug, like an officially licensed, I think, Ava butt plug. Is it like designed after one of the 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 Ava? Yeah, unit one, unit one. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite one. It has uh, my hair color scheme in it and my girlfriend's hair color scheme in it. She has purple hair, so it just like works out perfectly. Um, she still never watched it, but like, yeah, it's 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 my favorite Ava. 
Does no, it, actually, it yeah, it's a... my favorite Ava. Yeah, yeah. Does it come with a plug suit? I wish. Because the thing is, my favorite plug suit is the Unit 2 plug suit. It is the best plug suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's a mixed opportunity there for a Ramiel butt plug. I can't believe I'm going to put this out on the internet. It's going to be okay. Whatever. Fuck it. Yeah. We're hello. Small cousins. This is your uncle. Here's me talking about what I think. <laughs> there's a missed opportunity for the Ramiel butt plug specifically because, you know, spinning and spiraling into like a, vit, mm-hmm. right. Like and the name Ramiel. Yes. Ram. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This Excellent particular marketing. sex toy has a Taurus generator in it. Do you know what that means? No. So I feel like that's as good an icebreaker as any for getting started on this. Uh, so first of all, welcome back, Eric, to the, the Human Instrumentality Podcast, and welcome to the first time, Chingy. Thank you for having us. I'm pleased to be back. I'm rebuilding. So while we were doing that, uh, that episode with, with Eric back last season, the two of you were putting out behind anime lines covering uh, Satoshi Kon's paranoia agent which we joseph and i had had some intentions of we were still working over whether we were going to do it ultimately we decided that we will and i i think you know the the series that y'all were doing definitely played a part in that because of how fun it was to read you know the y'all's thoughts on the show so how did you two settle on doing paranoia agent and what did you think of the whole uh the whole process of uh, of writing about it how did we settle on that i have no memory of Anything past six months ago? Was that six months ago? It was longer, I think. <laughs> uh, I think we talked about a couple of options, and a lot of them were longer. And like this was one that I hadn't. I think part of it was that you really love it and have seen it multiple times, and I hadn't seen it. Yeah, it created a good rapport. Yeah. So we had that kind of imbalance of, of uh, perspectives mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, this is not that many episodes. It doesn't have to be like, we're going to go through the entirety of Hunter Hunter or something, you know. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Or Yu Yu Hakusho. Or Yu Yu Hakusho. Which... <laughs> we would still, we would still be doing it. <laughs> yeah. Eric, have you since finished uh, his filmography? No, I still haven't. I opened, I have like a window open because some, I don't remember what film institute did like a Satoshi Kon screening week. So I have a window open with my stream of Tokyo Godfathers, but I'm like waiting to try to get my girlfriend to watch it with me. Uh, you gotta which is watch a, a hard, it. It's the it's best like, one. I, I know. I know. I'm very excited to watch it. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. We've been on for 30 seconds and already like Chingy and I are, are like on opposite sides of the ring. I am squaring up. I am boxing. Fisticuffs. I don't want to make this. Is it, it is the what? best? Yeah. Of all the things. Yeah. Of all of his movies. Well, no, if, if we're counting Paranoia Agent, Paranoia Agent's the best, but okay. Okay. it's Paranoia Agent and Tokyo Godfathers. And then Perfect Blue. The thing is, they're all good. None of them are bad. They're all great. Like, they're all, like, on a scale of, like, five stars, they're all four plus. But Mm -hmm. I think that one is those, yeah, I like Tokyo Godfathers the most. It's the only one I've seen in theaters, I think. Uh Uh-huh. I still get to see any of his stuff in theaters. Oh, It Uh, it was the last thing I saw, actually, before the first lockdown, because uh, they had just released a new dub 
with uh, Shakina Fainak mm-hmm. as the voice of Hana, and it was really, really good. It was great. Um, wait, what, do you, what, what is your favorite uh, Satoshi Kon, then, if it's not Tokyo Godfathers? M- Mirian. You. Me. You. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Me. Okay. If, if we're counting, if we're counting, okay. No, it's perfect blue. It's per- uh, no, it's not. No, it's Millennium Actress. <laughs> Millennium Actress. Yes. Yes. We got me and Eric got in fisticuffs over this. <laughs> Millennium Actress want- gives me feels, intense feels. I liked Millennium Actress. I liked it a lot, but it didn't hit me the same way it hit Eric. Maybe it's, um, I don't know you very well, but I'm just wondering, have you ever spent, like, large portions of your life pining for a forgotten love? Is that, like, not relatable? Yes. Or, okay. Well, I, I have. Which is... It's all you do. I definitely have. Um, I think I think that's part of it. If I remember correctly, when we talked about it, you were like, this is too quotidian. Like, I'm on a higher yearning level than this. <laughs> sure. Sure. I think that's actually a really good takedown of it, actually, is, is, is that it's it even though it's like quite fantastical, like it's it's sort of like romantic pining is in its own way a little bit banal. But it's not it's not about the romantic pining. It's kind of it's about it through like cinema. And I love those are two of my favorite things. But I'm just like, eh. it, it's about the romantic pining as like the creativity engine, you know, the thing yeah. that like makes people do things. And the, you know, it, like, does not matter who the guy is, right? The whole... Right. It's about, like, the the act of feeling and, like, motivating yourself to live, like, an artistic life in a way that is, like, interesting and compelling. And I think, like, Perfect Blue probably is smarter about that because it's more cynical. But there's something I appreciate about Satoshi Kon being willing to, like, be that straightforwardly earnest in a way that I think he is not in most of his other work. I think that's a a really good segue into this pair of episodes because we, you know, we're talking about etc. and Melo Maromi. Two of the best ones. Two, probably the most like emblematically paranoia agent, paranoia agent episodes in some ways, which kind of like splits the difference or no, I think it leans more towards the cynicism of, uh, of Perfect Blue when it comes to like what it takes to like make a product. I don't even know if the the show within the show would qualify as like art necessarily, uh, but maybe we'll get into that. And yeah, it's it's a it's a very biting, cynical look at like the behind the scenes process and you know how these shows are churned out and created to begin with. But also, I think in etc. is kind of like a, a story about telling stories, and so you kind of get like two different versions of Cone tackling like how narratives are made, you know in two very different settings. Yeah, when we uh, when we watched this together, I kind of had a realization that, like, in my mind, the series is broken into, like, four sections. There's, mm-hmm. like, the opening where the first four episodes where it's, like, everybody is having their own individual experience with Shonen Bat. Um, and then there's the three episodes that follow that that are all sort of focused on the, like, dissolution of the investigation and like mm-hmm. how it all just sort of falls apart. Um, and then these three episodes, these two plus the episode before it, Happy Family Planning, which, God, I love that episode, um, are all sort of like more uh, separated. They're not single person stories. They're like about a collective nonsense that's beginning to form a collective like paranoia that's forming mm-hmm. like in society because of Shonen Bat. 
and then the final three episodes of the finale. But like, yeah, I always think this is like very much the culmination of everything. Yeah, I I think that's a really good read on it. These three episodes all are kind of like, I think like one of the things that attracted uh, Paranoia Agent to me or attracted me to Paranoia Agent is the degree to which it's kind of like a social show. It's a show about a bunch of different people and how they relate to each other, like in a in a system rather than like in our first season, we did uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. And that's such an internal, like individualistic kind of show in some ways. It's all like exploring individual uh subjectivity and this it does that but it shows like all of the ways that those characters are are interlinked and then this the three collective nonsense i I love that (laughs) uh, that phrase for like these three feel like zooming out even from like shonen bad itself like we're not even like really following the investigation anymore this has ceased to be a crime show it is now just a show that is like zoomed out to the point of like you know as the two of you were joking like the we live in society episodes (laughs) episodes <laughs> i think that's why me and eric smiled at the same time because we, yeah. we were both like waiting to <laughs> we live in a society satoshi Khan's the only one allowed to say that <laughs> it's true yeah he really nailed it uh so i'm curious like eric as like the first timer uh to to Cohen, like what was your or to, to paranoia agent in particular rather what was your impression of these two episodes i really loved both of these i like the end a lot obviously we're like not there but i think i like overall i like the parts of paranoia agent the most that are like the least about the sort of central through line so like i love this because Because you just get dropped into this, like, very specific location, and then you're like, damn, I want to gossip with these old ladies. (laughs) Um, And it does does this thing that is, I think, one of my favorite things about Cone's work, which is that he's, like, very mean, or he's, he's very good at depicting people in a way that exaggerates a lot of their more, like, execrable qualities while still making them feel fundamentally, like, human and empathetic. Like, it doesn't feel cruel. So you get this sort of central, you know, all the... There's, like, the moment where uh, one of the women in this apartment complex is like, well, like, I could tell you this story, but you all have to promise not to tell anybody. And then it, like, cuts between all the women being like, oh, of course, of course, of course, of course, you know? And it's like, of course they're going to go tell everybody. <laughs> and and I think he does such a good job of capturing, like, all of the the funny and, like, terrible things about these people while still clearly, like, having a lot of affection for them, uh, which I think is not easy. Yeah, it feels like lived in, like it it seems like observing real people and sure, maybe it's not exactly the most like idealistic representation of, you know, it's ultimately it is just a bunch of people gossiping and, you know, bullying a new neighbor, but it doesn't feel like cartoonishly cruel in that way. They still feel like relatable human beings. I can I can I filigree a point there? Or at least let me because we're going to be saying I feel bad because last time Eric was on. It was when we were we it was the only time on this show that we've hate watched something or that I've hate watched something. Right. So the last time it was Eric a rebuild. Was here, we right? talking, it was yeah, the rebuild, rebuild too. too. Um, which, well, yeah, Joseph and I did not enjoy and Eric became came logged on as the defender. So, 
Oh, wait, before before we dig, before we get more into this, I'm, like, very curious. Did 4, did 3.0 plus 1.0 change your guys' opinions of 2? Ian, you go first. I think it definitely just, like, the Mari stuff was, of course, like, one of the bigger sticking points with, like, Joseph and I's problem with 2. And I think, like, in the long run, in the scope of all of the rebuilds, Thrice Upon a Time, I think, justifies her presence in the story and makes clear, like, what she's doing there. I still think, like, I would enjoy rewatching to the least of any of the four of them. But I think that in the scope of, like, what the big picture is, I get why it is there, you know? I just still, I guess, have, like, some issues with, like, the way that certain twists... I, I still feel like it is maybe in the way that we were talking about a bit cynical with how it's toying with the audience, but that that's its purpose. Its purpose is to sort of overemphasize the stuff of the show that I'm not quite that into as a way of then accenting how hard the pivot into three and four are. So yeah, like in context, I like it, but as a standalone film, I I still don't think it's my favorite of the four, not by a long shot. How about you, Joseph? Sure, sure, sure. Yes. So four went a long, a long way toward warming me up to Mari as as an intrusion, as an inclusion, right? Um, but at the same, <laughs> punk rock is an intrusion. Yeah. However, I think in in four also makes me like two less in some ways because I think mechanically speaking, four and two are the sloppiest of any Ava related thing except for maybe the jet alone episode right like i think like in terms of like the way that the scenes are woven together and like the 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 emotional blocking of them and and the way that the pacing works and building of the information as distributed to the to the audience and the character beats i think they're both actually pretty sloppy they kind of accelerate decelerate veer left veer right kind of kind of a little manic right but four made me feel like more profoundly Whereas like two just kind of made me go, what? After seeing that that he can do sloppy and still do the Ava thing to me in four, that that in a way actually makes me look at two a little less fondly, right? Because I'm like, you couldn't you couldn't get my tear ducts kind of massage in this time, bro. You did it like mm-hmm. all the other times. Why not this one, right? So, uh, you know, there you go. Of the rebuilds, it's still, I would say, the, the my least favorite. You know, but hey, cool stuff. They're still, they're still cool stuff. You know, he, he, they clearly like, tried to justify some of those interesting decisions. I don't know why Kaji's even in it, even though like Queer Kaji is one of my favorite twists in the rebuilds. But like, it, it's interesting in fourth. They're like, oh, by the way, and Kaji was super important and died and we're not going to talk about it. Goodbye. See what I mean? Now we have little Kaji. Kaji Jr. Shin Kaji. Yeah, the spinoff. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> when, when the studio, you know, when they come back to him and they're like, we're going to give you an insane amount of money to, like, sign a document letting some other studio make an Ava thing, it'll be like, the adventures of Ryoji Kaji Jr. <laughs> and, like, that's great. That's what I want. I want that or like a, a slice of life show that's like in the village. That's what I da- want. Kaji's kid going around and like restoring the world after the apocalypse with like the help of 
credit. I would definitely watch that. It would definitely be like, that's the kind of fan service that I would enjoy. He needs a moment where he puts his mom's comrade hat on. Right. When he becomes lead comrade Kaji. I'm like, okay, now I stand. Just the the entire sort of like the main arc of the show is about him trying to repopulate the Earth's watermelon uh, (laughs) stock. (laughs) Right, of course. I love that that's realistic and also has like so many like weird innuendo undertones. We're getting really far away from like the topic of this episode. (laughs) It was about to get further because I had suddenly realized that Kaji's name is spelt with uh, katakana instead of kanji and I'm weirded out by that. Um, So yeah, let's go back to the (laughs) I'm weirded out by that too. Now suddenly I'm like, why would you? Anyway. So a a perfectly uh, long digression for a very like digression filled episode in etc where we essentially get like these like 10 short stories kind of like chained together just going back to the tokyo godfathers thing what i like is that the the three central uh women the besides the new character the the new uh neighbor are from tokyo godfathers right uh, they're there to like Wait, are they yeah when they find the um the burned down house it's like those three women are like gossiping and giving the the heroes a bunch of oh like clues to get get them directed to the you know the true answer of like who the mother is uh i didn't even realize that yeah <laughs> it, the cool thing about that is i feel like you know in the same way that uh Joseph and I have been bringing up that there's there's a few moments where paranoia agent feels like kind of playing something that was played for laughs in Tokyo Godfathers for drama. Uh, this time around, like, you know, the like homeless situation is obviously a huge part of both. And I think like. Obviously, it's 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 still very serious in Tokyo Godfathers, but it, it's a more lighthearted tone, whereas like the old woman and paranoia agent has a bit more it's a bit more ominous it's it's treated like a bit more hmm, like more dramatically uh like purely dramatically and i think here there's like where like gossip was something that was presented as like helpful to the main characters in tokyo godfathers here it's like shown to be kind of this is like the darker side of, of that sort of gossiping and how that can lead to a certain kind of like in-group out-group thing and you know, spread the uh, the myth of of Little Slugger across you know all these different genres. And this was just after Tokyo Godfathers, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, Paranoia Agent was like two thousand four, and Godfathers two thousand three. I think that's right. Correct. Yeah, uh, Paranoia Agent two thousand four, two thousand five. I think. Let me just double check that. So I know that some of the production overlapped. So like, while mm-hmm. Tokyo Godfathers was in post, Paranoia Agent was in pre. Uh, I know that. Yes, you're right. And this is sort of, well, I I, I don't want to get too far like away from like the story of what's going on in the episodes because I think it's really interesting. There's a lot in it, in et cetera, in particular that I think is like really, really good. However, I would say the other thing that sort of ties these two episodes together and not family planning. So if we're if we're calling happy family planning and these like sort of like the outer rim of the of the uh, the blast radius of the Shonen Bat blast radius, right? Here's Shonen Bat becoming full like tulpa cryptid, infecting the minds of everyone in this neighborhood and playing mischief and mayhem, right? That's that's this these three arcs, right? 
what separates these two episodes from Happy Family Planning is these are the two episodes where the production of the show was starting to go off the rails. And a lot of what's going on in these episodes is is weirdly like grappling with that experience. And that shows it's it, that shows itself in, in the plot in ways in ways that I like. So for one thing, they're all they're all sort of um workplace dramas to an extent. I mean, uh, uh you know, Mela Maromi explicitly and then uh et cetera isn't a workplace drama per se, right? However, the experience of being the new person in the set tight knit society where everyone's stuck together, you know, sort of sort of by force, say the water cooler, right? Um mm-hmm. This episode does a good job of capturing that first day in the office on a new job feeling. We're all talking about stuff that's going on. I was on an email. I, I heard something about it. Yeah, sure you did. Uh, wait, what'd you read? No, fuck you. Uh, we're going to keep talking about stuff, right? It, it, it does a wonderful job of capturing that distinct, almost universal and almost universally alienating experience really well. Like, I, I don't want to typecast everyone as having worked in an office before, but I know a lot of people have. It, it do be that way. Yeah. There's sort of like the rules of like the storytelling, like all of the stories are kind of flimsy, but who's allowed to call bullshit on which elements of the, the stories is obviously divided into like the, the three women that are there before are able to call BS on uh, Kamahara's stories, but she's not allowed to do the same for the inconsistencies in theirs. So there is kind of like an in-group out group kind of thing there that you're describing. Totally. Does anyone have like a, a favorite of the of these little like mini stories? Let's see. I think hers is the funniest. Like the the sight gag of the ultrasound that looks like Shonen <laughs> Bat is very good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Um, I like the one with the uh with the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law is so like just like how comically like upper class arch she is. Um, mm-hmm. And then they're just like, wait, I thought, Sh- I thought Shonen Bat doesn't get it wrong. And it's like, well, he must have. I don't, I don't know. Like they're already starting to bend their rules and then they just go with it because they're like, oh, she's one of us. It's fine. Like you were right. saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like this woman, it, it would be much better. Or I could envision a version of this where this woman is like, and that's how my mother-in-law died and Shonen Bat did it. Not me. Mm-hmm. Everyone's very confused about why my mother-in-law was killed with a baseball bat, but it it wasn't. It was definitely shown in bad. I also love that they switch up the animation style for like at least one of them for the one where they're doing like kind of like a clearly like romantic like shojo situation where it's just like this boy's girlfriend is like she's very ill and like. They're like going to spend their lives together and it's like a completely different art style. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden Shonen Bat is there. That's going back to like when Eric was describing like the rudeness of Cone's stuff. That's where I feel it most. uh, I feel like he's most rude when he's doing like the classic big eye anime look. It always feels like so much like you could be watching some bullshit instead of like this show. (laughs) Correct. I, I we, we've all named some of the, the shorts I really like, and I, I want to talk about like the changing of the animation styles here, too, because as I was talking about the production, etc. production credits are absolutely fucking wild. However, let's let's not forget the boxer. The boxer. Yeah, I I love the I love the boxing short. I, I like this idea that that um, Shonen Bat leaves bait. 
for people like who who leaves this like piece of cake just out here on a on a misty bridge for some fitness obsessed dude to to uh struggle with his desire to eat it right um and then when it doesn't work oh i just need to leave even tastier things oh i've got to make sure that the engine on this parked car was turned off just recently so it's still cooking the little bento box that i've left out for it right like how how bad does shonen bat want to get these people in in like going right i just gotta imagine like how hungry do you have to be to want to eat a piece of cake off the ground (laughs) right (laughs) disgusting disgusting. it's it's looney tunes is you know i feel like shonen bat really does like operate by you know a much sort of like older animation rules but in a like more sinister way you know Mm -hmm. like a version you you could imagine like a lot of moments in the show if shonen bat talked he would be like, oh, ain't I a stinker? I just beat the shit out of this child. But up up but up Yes, yeah. I, I think like that's kind of like the the playfulness with like the sort of innocence of the design versus like the horror of like the violence that he causes. It's like playing on your the tension of, you know, how violent older cartoons is in some ways. It's like defamiliarizing that uh that type of sort of slapstick violence and then putting it into the quote-unquote real world in that way it sort of reminds me of and i can't believe i'm bringing this up in this fucking podcast but now that you mention it i I, as i rethink about this i get a weird vibe of the mask Mm -hmm. yes it's like 100 percent. not that jim carrey should be shown in bat please no jim Um, carrey is shown in bat (laughs) but he makes all the noises with himself even though like no it's different here here's what you do is you need someone else to be shown in bat and every other character is jim carrey because every other character here has insane face morphs right i was gonna say do it as shown have him be shown in bat but have it be in the style of that christmas carol movie he did where like they just oh, like God. morph his face onto a child, like adult Jim Carrey's face onto a child's body. <laughs> they do that in the Love Guru too. Oh Jesus! Oh God! Great film. Uh, I did like classic in, cinema. In behind anime lines, you did point out that Hirokawa does do the like somebody stop me line. <laughs> he practically <does> so. <laughs> Jim Carrey is not too far away from this. Jim Carrey, of all the characters in this, if you were to make a live-action Paranoia Agent, which obviously nobody should, there are ones that I think you could actually pull off. This is not one of them. Jim Carrey, Hirokawa would be fantastic. Yes. (laughs) Or Maniwa. Yeah. In like a 23 style, like... 23 style remember that movie 23 Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) like he's losing his mind because little sluggers everywhere like oh it's all shonen bat like wow jim carrey is definitely like we've unlocked it he's like the patron saint of this (laughs) this series somehow (laughs) this was satoshi khan's ode to jim carrey Carrey. Look, as we're recording this episode, just to date ourselves, the sequel to the Sonic the Hedgehog movie has just been released. I'm so I hate it. I hated I'm the so first excited. one. I'm so excited. He was but so good in it. It was classic, Carrie. That's the crazy thing is I do I do want to see the second one because like weirdly enough, like Jim Carrey as Doctor Robotnik is that is perfect casting. That that is a match made in heaven. Like <laughs> I still haven't seen the first now. one. I want to see it. 
I saw it on one of the last movies I saw before the pandemic started. I saw it opening day, Valentine's Day 2020. I went to see it with my roommate, and then I went to have Valentine's Day dinner with my girlfriend and her mother. And her mother was like, what did you do today? And I had to say, well, I went to the opening day of Sonic the Hedgehog. You're like, chili dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the Sonic novels. movie either. So I kind of want to see Sonic 2 more than Sonic 1. Well, because you got, you got Knuckles and Tails in the mix now. Exactly. Yeah, Idris Elba. I, I just picture Idris Elba painted red with a pair of big Knuckles gloves. Like, I think I made that edit at one point, and I, I, that's, like, what I'm here for. Wait, who's, who's playing Tails? I think it's the same actress who does it in the games. The rare, the oh, rare nice. case where they actually do that, yeah. They didn't just get Chris Pratt to do it or something, yeah. Ooh, I am a Tails. <laughs> <laughs> tails you. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen O'Shaughnessy as Tails. Okay. Um, you know, there's the, the, the sort of the classic line about how paranoia agent was kind of put together from like the scraps of stuff that didn't make it into any of Cone's uh, movies. And I feel like the, the first story that gets told the sort of like student psych horror story of like vomiting up the equations that feels like a seed of an idea that he couldn't quite fit into some other movie. Whereas a lot of the other stories here also just kind of feel like having fun with genre conventions and stuff like that. Like, I can't imagine that there was like a Satoshi Kon like baseball movie that that scene didn't get worked into or something, but remarkable that it took them this long to do a baseball joke with little. Slug. Right. That's true. I don't, th- I really don't. I have like absolutely no evidence for this, but I was thinking a little bit, there's a really interesting piece on what is this substack called? I pulled up uh, animation obsessive about Satoshi Kon reacting to seeing Requiem for a Dream, basically, and sort of the entire history of Darren Aronofsky being like, I'm going to steal things from Satoshi Kon. And this short, because I rewatched a little bit of it before we recorded, and I was like, it would be very funny to me if Satoshi Kon was, like, really angry, he, like, went back through the entire Darren Aronofsky filmography, watched Pi... And was like, I could do that in two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Just like throw like Lux Alterna or whatever it's called over it. And you've got like the perfect Aronofsky pastiche. Yeah, you're just <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> well, you, you, you bring up something that, that really stuck out to me in this episode. Um, and, and, and that is like, I, I specifically when I watched like the, the pregnancy bit, right? It's like a perfect Cronenberg movie in 90 seconds, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in, a lot of, in a lot of these shorts, I sort of got the sense of like, oh, this is like every important beat in an A24 movie. And like, I, I'm, a, I'm a simpleton, okay? And I'm a rube. So the, the elevated horror boom of present is like something that I, that I do love and hold near and dear to my heart. But I am like sensitive to the critique that like there's eh, not actually that much there, right? Like I love Hereditary. Does it need to be like two hours and in, in whatever? Um, and this is sort of like, like now watching this episode, I look at Cohen being like, I could do every single like hip spoopy movie from the last 10 years in one 20 minute episode and make it funny 
instead and make it yeah. funny. Yeah. I think that is, I feel like that's like a consistent animation thing too. Like when we watched it while we were doing behind anime lines, I think the thing I compared this episode to is the episode of Batman the Animated Series where it's like all the villains playing poker being like, I totally could have got Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that does a very similar thing where you like watch every superhero movie and then you go back and watch Batman the Animated Series and you're just like, they did all of this in like two, you know, in like two minutes and it's way better. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, it it it's a useful way of like reframing the perspective on the show. It's like, you know, we can't have an episode from Shonen Bat's perspective, but we can like zoom out and move away from like the detective arc and instead show like how much more there is to the the world of the show. I think it's a really good comparison. It is sort of tied to I, it might be worth talking about how it's tied into Melo Moromi as well because our sort of central character Kamahara is the wife of the script writer for the Melo Moromi anime. And what I like is that at one point when, you know, the neighbors are are saying like, you should come up with like better stories. There's like no twists to, to any of your stories. Uh, like, aren't you married to a screenwriter? The cool thing is this episode then like does that same trick of it having a twist. Like it's kind of building so that you think that like she's going to be a shonen bat villain because of, uh, or a, a shonen bat victim because she's the one getting under increasing pressure to like come up with a good story, but instead it's her husband, which then she like starts trying to mine for content basically. Yeah, he's like on the floor bleeding, and she's just like, "What happened? Tell me. I need. I need. I need this for the girls. The girls need the story. Like, <laughs> sign, the sign this ex. Sign this exo Jane contract. I'll give you fifty dollars. It <laughs> happened to me." Shonen Bat beat the shit out of my husband. Got him. <laughs> it, yeah. Do you okay? Do Do you wonder though? Like, okay. So first of all, just while we're talking about like her s- screenwriter husband like bleeding out on the floor, I, maybe I'm wrong, but correct me. And this is now like probably like the third time I've had to watch this episode for making this series, not counting the first time it came out. So I don't think I'm wrong, but correct me. Um, this is the first time you see someone like bleeding. From a shonen bat attack. Am I right? I think so. I think so. I can't think of another instance. Like, usually someone's, like, maybe bandaged sometimes. But, like, I don't think you see someone, like, actually bleeding from an attack before this. Yeah, there's... We usually only see, like, the aftermath. We never see, like, the blow itself, except in, like, Hirokawa's case, which is obviously, like, then played for... like sort of a, as a a joke reveal of con, uh, of sorts like it does seem like while we weren't paying attention the level of violence has like escalated now like shonen bad is like you know leaving people you know covered in blood i i guess like episode 7 the in the the prison cell there's the the trail of blood from like the the dead kid um that's true but yeah. this you're right that this does kind of feel like a, a slightly different thing I mean, I think it, like, speaks to, like, the escalation both of, like, him as a, like, cultural entity and also, like, like as he becomes more, like, more of a rumor, more of a, like, group delusion, like, he becomes more violent. It's, like, more... It just makes me think of American gods. It's just, like, the more people believe in right. him, the, like, more power he has. Yes. I, I also think extra-textually... 
it is funny that the sort of like first times you see this level of violence, it's against people in the anime industry. Well, right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, but, but, but I do have something for that, but like, can we put a pin in that for just one second? Because it seems like we want to pivot to Mello Maroney, but yeah. I, I think there's a lot in it set in et cetera that we haven't quite talked about yet. And, and one of those things is, with the escalation of violence, Shonen Bat's also getting more of a personality in this episode. You know, like at the, at the start of the show, he's barely in any of the episodes and like steadily you get more and more and more. And the first time you really, I really got like a sense of, of Shonen Bat as like an entity is, is that scene where he's like killed his doppelganger. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and doesn't he like smile and slowly roll backward through into the, the shadow right yeah right mm-hmm. and that's ominous but it's a very like stock horror movie right whereas in in etc like you get such of a sense of like mischief from, from right it. going back which i think makes it so funny because like the first moment i think of his personality is happy family planning when mm-hmm. uh the one moment he's in the episode is he's just killed or he's just like killed someone ostensibly possibly or just hit them and then the three, like, the three vagabonds see him and are just like, kill us! Kill! They start chasing him down and he's running. Like, it's like a, like, he's like being chased by a Scooby-Doo villain. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it feels like a very Scooby-Doo style sequence. And it's just like the most, like, like, you see him genuinely shocked. And it's not the first time you see him genuinely shocked. You'll see it again later like in the last few episodes. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting how much his personality begins to form in this like period of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like my oh, so I feel like my question about this and I I'm curious what people think cuz it does like jive a little bit with the personality that we see later, but I like I'm not sure I read all of this as like being shown in Bass personality because there's like so much stuff in the episode. That's just sort of implying, I mean, I guess it sort of is that these women are just kind of like making up some bullshit and that the shit that they're making up is like co-constitutive with the sort of like mass social delusion that is shown in Bath. But it's interesting that that personality is what gets added when we are not like in the quote unquote reality of the show, seeing the, the attacks, right. That personality Mm -hmm. is like being added by the storytellers. Right. And it's only after it's been added by the storytellers that we then see it in the reality in the next episode. Yeah. That's yeah. Those two are kind of intermingling at this point. It's, it's not really like a spoilery thing, but in one of the later episodes they do like people are again, gossiping about Shonen Bat and like, they keep talking. They're like, I heard he's giant now. And then it shows like an image of him, like as a giant monstrous guy with like a gnarled bat. Like, I think that like plays into the same thing. Even like in Mel Moromi, he has a bit more of a sense of humor, you know, like knocking on the glass of the, of the window of the car or pulling a Dio Brando and showing up with his arms crossed in the back crossed seat. In the back you know? seat. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, He's now starting to have like a sense of humor and a sense of like uh, Looney Tunes esque mischief, uh, the way that you're describing. He's become an anime antagonist, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I think that the sense sort of is that in people envisioning him as the 
as the anime antagonist of of their own imaginations that becomes like infused into whatever piece of the of of like the entity so to speak really ex- really exists and like it I'm a little hesitant to go too far down like the metaphysics of paranoia agent because a they're not consistent and and b I don't think Satoshi Kon cares like as opposed to evangelion where like yes it's inconsistent but yes clearly the show also does kind of care about its own mythology like paranoia agent is not actually interested in in how does how do shonen bat right Mm -hmm. that's not the question it's it's trying to answer but but the here's my read of 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 that though is that the i think the the piece of of people that becomes that gets stitched into shonen bat I I read a lot of that as as coming from Khan, the director. Like in, in this episode in particular, like I see Shonen Bat as the little infant Tarib as like almost uh, a, a meta thing, right? It's almost like here's him inserting himself into like otherwise rote storytelling tropes and messing with them for the sake of 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 like some purpose that is his own right and like trying to figure out that purpose is 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 that is trying to figure out like what 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 cone means right i feel like sometimes the incongruity of shonen bat like in the the melodrama for example like the art style is different the tone is different it's using like different music and him showing up at the end is almost like the point is to highlight how tropey all these stories are by him arriving as kind of this like invasive force to like break open the fourth wall and kind of wink at the audience to show like we know we're playing around with like very recognizable forms that you know from other places like his his presence highlights the degree to which the you know the stories are just kind of stories yeah i think also like the introduction to i like i was thinking as i was watching it today um that like the melodrama like that would have been like the commercial break right before it. And there's no bumper right before it. So they really mm. want you to be like fully immersed in this for it only like, you're like, wait, what am I watching? Like, was this what I was original or like you just turn the channel to it. And all of a sudden there is the avatar of Satoshi Kon, so to speak, Shonen bat, like to like cause mischief in this otherwise like rote melodrama. And I feel like maybe as a, as a useful pivot point into Melo Maromi, I sort of feel like that's Maromi's purpose as like the, the narrator, the fourth wall breaker in, uh, in that episode. Like we have all these like, you know, introductions of the various members of the crew that are done through like Maromi showing up to, you know, explain something about the anime industry. And I feel like that's maybe where we feel Cone's voice, the, the loudest in that episode. Definitely. I mean, so according to the lore, not the lore of the show, but the lore of the production of Paranoia Agent. Apocryphally, the original idea behind the episode Mello Maromi was that it would be in part live action and the staff making Paranoia Agent would play themselves and, and, and that it would be about how hard it is to make an episode of Paranoia Agent and like ostensibly, I guess, at some point in time, Satoshi Kon would be beaten to death by his own Shonen Bat? You know, clearly that doesn't wind up happening 
but I think like the germ or seed of that intention definitely like still exists in the episode as as it does exist. That's sick. Yeah, he framed <laughs> Shonen Bat. Right. <laughs> right. It's it, one thing. I don't know if this like fully fits here, but it is a thing that's interesting that I wanted to like drop into this conversation in this same piece that I mentioned a little bit earlier about Darren Aronofsky. There's like a little bit of stuff of, where of people talking about what it was like to work with Satoshi Kon. And I think perhaps unsurprisingly, it seems like he was like a really fucking terrible boss and like ex- sort of extremely demanding and unpleasant. The article quotes, let me find it. People like his, even his sort of like very close coworkers describe him uh, with the phrase Iana Yatsu or nasty guy. So I think there is something like you could imagine in that, right? Of like he's under this pressure. And then also, right, all of the staff that's working on the show is under pressure that's coming from him. It's not coming, mm-hmm. you know, from the ether. It's not even necessarily coming from like the advertisers or the studio. It's like specifically coming from him. And I think I think that's like interesting to think about in, in, in the context of like what that story would have looked like. I would have hated to be the production coordinator working on this episode. Just if I'm like to be the production coordinator that like Naoyuki Sarata is based off would like really <laughs> suck. It's the right. least flattering portrait of a bunch of very unflattering portraits. Yeah, I think this this might be the most like the character uh, in the show that the show hates the most. Even even Hirokawa, we get like some sense of internal conflict, but this guy just sucks. He's no just... self awareness, no competence, no like. There's he doesn't really have any like he is bullied, which makes us sympathize with him to a degree. But like he has no redeeming quality. He is actually ruining the show he works on. Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> I did want to ask maybe, have you ever worked with a Sarita? Have you ever had someone like in your office or someone that you've uh, had to deal with that gives off the similar degree of complete like disinterest in doing what they're supposed to do? I'm like scared that I would be a Sarita <laughs> is my fear. I'm like, I'm like, not because of disinterest, but I'm like, I just feel like I'm incompetent. I don't know that I would do this job any better than he would. Like, Mm -hmm. folding up the animation cell or, like, whatever it was. (laughs) Brutal. I had, like, one internship where I had, like, this other kid that I worked with who's, like, the rich kid of the interns who also Mm -hmm. would, like, blab about, you know, like, one of the defining moments of this episode, I feel like, is Sarita saying, like, oh, but I thought you said that you looked for writers and couldn't find any. It's like, dude, why, why did you, why did you say that out loud? That reminded me of some, uh, some, some bad coworkers that I've had before in the past. I've been Saruta. I know that, mm-hmm. but I, I've also, I feel like I've been every single character in, in this episode in various capacities. I've been the Nobunaga Oda, uh, which is such like, a funny name, Right. <laughs> Here, let's let's name the producer after uh, a famous feudal warlord. He's in like every Dynasty Warriors game or something. What? The Samurai okay. Warriors games, not the the Dynasty Warriors. Samurai ones Warriors, are set in right, China. right, right. And the great series uh, Oda Cinnamon Nobunaga, where Nobunaga is reincarnated as a dog. <laughs> Why? That's great. 
It's great. What? All the other warlords from like this period are all reincarnated as dogs, and the show is like about them fighting at the dog park. Of course, that's great. I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> I'm now very in. I um, bought in. It only took that description. Um, to me, it's it's like an act of foreshadowing, almost right. Like Nobunaga is kind of also fa- was famously betrayed by one of his own generals, and so I think like to the the like the audience that may know their history having seeing that he's he has that name is sort of letting you know that he's going to you know get backstabbed at some point in the episode and he does ultimately uh it's interesting like you eric when you bring up the the fact that cone was maybe a bad boss like it's kind of hard to not read some of that in nobunaga because he's like even though we're supposed to maybe sympathize with him trying to get the show made at the end, like he takes the the V the finished VHS from his dead coworker without blinking an eye. You know, he's just upset as obsessed with like, you know, getting this thing finished at you know, regardless of the cost of you know what it does to his team. You know, it it it's, seems commendable at first, but it's revealed to be just as like kind of inhumane and dehumanizing as uh, as maybe Sarta appears as well. I think you could imagine a version of this where there's like a clearer stand in who's like the only person who has the vision and all of the, you know, subordinates are incompetent. And like, that would suck. That would be mm-hmm. such an unpleasant version of this story. And I appreciate that that sort of like exacting nature, you know, it, it doesn't, nobody escapes. <laughs> yeah. Nobody escapes the animation industry. I'm imagining being the key animator. Uh, you know, you know, doing the keyframes for this particular sequence, Satoshi Kon is my boss, comes up behind me very slowly, puts those weird kind of long fingers on my shoulder, says, more blood, as I'm pulling the VHS tape from your cold, dead hands. And just walks away. <laughs> Jesus I do, Christ. It is, it, I do think the animators get the, the most sympathetic portrayal. Like, the worst shit happens to mm-hmm. them. Like, the computer getting unplugged, folding the right. cell. Like th- th- being I told how- at the last minute that I have to do all this coloring, like right. God, I what? Well, there's a few interesting. It's it's like easy to read, maybe whether or not this. It's e- easy to read into. I don't know if it's necessarily true whether this episode is like a direct critique of other people that he's worked with or of the industry at large. There's a f- like. It's hard to say, but. I think there's a few interesting moments of like pretty pointed critique where one of the reasons that they're having so much trouble putting the show together is that like it's said sort of off screen like, oh, there's just too many shows being put out right now. Like the talent is spread super thin, which I feel like is a pretty pointed attack at the the industry at large from uh, from Cone. Well, it also may be specifically a pointed critique at him making this episode in the previous one, mm-hmm. because at, at this point in time in the production. Here we're doing my segment. Time to talk names. Time to get away from auteur theory and look at the actual staff making things. Um, at this point in time, the Paranoid Agent production production was not going super well. They were they were getting like super uh, cramped. People were getting pulled onto other projects, and so Cone starts pulling other people from other projects onto his. And so for these two episodes in particular, the production credits are kind of crazy. Let me just so, so the big one to pull out is 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 of course etc had four episode directors credited 
One of them's Cohn, who did not want to direct it. His Mm -hmm. plan, as I understand it, was just to direct the first couple and then final episode. He, like, did not want to be on etc., but he is. And the other big name on that episode, aside from Atsushi Takahashi and Michio Mihara, who we've talked about before, they've they've been working on this for a long time, um, Rin Taro helped out with this episode. Okay, listeners, you can't see because it's an audio medium, but Chingy just did a really great, like, trucker fist pull. Um, Chingy's yeah. happy. Why don't you, why don't you, what are you inform? Maybe you better than me can inform the readers. Why should they know the name Rintaro? Uh, I mean, Rintaro has been a director and like animator for, he like was working for like many, many years at this point, like, uh, worked on Galaxy Express 999, Adu Galaxy Express 999, uh, and Neo Tokyo, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen Neo Tokyo or Metropolis. Metropolis is probably his most famous project, yeah, but he also did X, which I think was the first thing I saw by him because I was a big Clamp fan growing up. Ah, uh, okay. And didn't he also, maybe I'm wrong. I'm trying to double check myself here. I guess it's not saying, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought he worked a little bit on um, Aeon Flux. He did some work in America too, I thought. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh. I don't know about that. I'm not that educated on everything about him. I just know about, uh, I just know some of his movie credits as a director. Okay. Well, either way, Rintaro is one of these, one of these people who, wow, he's 81. Good job. Yeah, he's old. This man worked on Astro Boy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He worked for, he did a lot of, uh, he did stuff with Tezuka. He did stuff with. Leiji Matsumoto, obviously with a, a Do Galaxy Express, um, but yeah, he is a, a real pioneer of it. So it's wild that he directed one of these episodes with four other people, with three other people. Partially, partially directed, right? And my guess is it wasn't so much, "Hey, Rintaro, you want to work with Satoshi Kon on an episode?" I think it's more like, "Rintaro, are Please you doing anything today? <laughs> I need you. Come into my office." This is Satoshi. Satoshi, Rin, make it happen. Don't talk to me till it's done. Thank you. Bye. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> and the animator credits are even are even fucking crazier, which makes sense because it's a bunch of shorts stuck together. But the animation supervisor list is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people long, including Masahashi Ando, who did do he was he was like a ghibli guy he did key animation on porco rosso um he was the character designer on princess mononoke right he also did and here we go key animation evangelion 3.0 ah uh-huh. right another one pulling him in so uh, at this point in time in the show they're just like it seems like tapping people on the shoulder around the office to help make paranoia agent happen melon madhouse right yeah this is a is all madhouse yeah that's what i thought melon maromi has three key animators junko abe masahashi ando again and katsu yamada um who i believe who did oh high and low three that's what this guy did as in the third version of akira kurosawa's (laughs) high and low (laughs) Wait, what is high and low three? Okay, so they this is a weird this is a weird thing. At one point in time in like the aughts, they did a remake 
of Kurosawa's High and Low that did well enough to warrant two direct-to-DVD sequels? Interesting. <laughs> That's what you know him from, High and Low 3. <laughs> you, you guys know. Yeah, that famous movie that we all know and love. <laughs> I, I definitely don't know as much about the sort of production overlap, but I, I am looking now at the list of sort of what Madhouse was doing at roughly the same time. And I would be very curious how much overlap there was between some of these productions, specifically Monster. We're, we're getting another another series of, of fist bumps. <laughs> All right. I just did like five. Double fist I did like eight yeah. fist bumps. <laughs> Yeah, Monster is one of the greatest mangas ever written. Uh, yeah, go on. I mean, it's, it's it, that, and then also <laughs> to a lesser extent, speaking personally, back Mongolian Chop Squad. But I, I would be very curious, like how much you know uh, overlap or pulling people. You know, where you're like, listen, I know you're working on Monster right now, but we really need you to come in and help us do a different thing about a very evil child. What if Johan Lieber is? <laughs> yeah. Show it. <laughs> the weird little Nazi. We we don't have to get too off topic, but Monster whips ass. It's it's fine. I, I wish I'd had, uh, I have not read or seen Monster, so I can't can't contribute too much to that combo. But I've it's been highly recommended to me for sure. Yeah, it's probably one of the two, in my opinion, the two best Naokira Sawa manga. Uh, the anime is really good. It's basically shot for shot. Uh, I've like mm-hmm. watched it while reading the what's, manga. What, what's your other one? Billy Bat. Yes! Oh my god, I was hoping you were going to say that. Billy Bat, I feel like, actually has a lot in conversation with Maromi. I would say Billy Bat has so much in conversation with Paranoia Agent as a whole, yeah. As it, it's about, like, this, like, figure, this pop cultural figure who shows up in the collective conscious and, like, influences reality in ways mm-hmm. that we can't understand. The, the short version, I feel like, of the premise of Billy Bat is, like, what if Mickey Mouse was a, a demon who also caused the JFK assassination? But also tried to stop it. <laughs> yeah, also tried to stop it. Yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald is a major landing. character uh, in Billy Bat. I love manga Lee Harvey Oswald so much. Um, I'm pretty sure that's never going to get an anime adaptation or like uh, localization in the West because... It handles the JFK assassination. Hitler is a character. It's all very serious for the most part. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, I think, either Malcolm X or MLK. There's, like, a bunch of stuff. At one point, Einstein, like, like, Albert Einstein threatens to go back in time and kill Osamu Tezuka's parents, basically. It's not Osamu Tezuka, but it's a character that wears a beret and is clearly Osamu Tezuka. And he's just like, right. if you tell anyone what you just said to me, I'm going to go back in time and kill your parents. And it's very serious. It's a serious scene. It's not a joke. And it's great. Well, it's one of my favorite manga ever. Yeah. I, I, this, you've sold me extremely hard on this, but looping back around to Moromi as like a similar figure. You know, this is the episode where if like the last episode was about the proliferation of Shonen Bat into like folklore and into all these other kinds of genres, this is the most we see of like Moromi becoming like a mimetic object across all of culture, like all of the different pieces of Moromi merch. And now this like TV show that they're making of Moromi, I think it's like, obviously, we all know where this is kind of building with 
the, these two characters kind of like expanding outwards in tandem with each other. Like the more there is of one of them, the more there is of the other. It, do you feel like this is maybe like also a, a the most direct attack on like the Sanrio aesthetic? Because like the show that we see at the beginning definitely look like I can't tell like again whether Cone is being rude in the way that he depicts other anime. I think Cone's a rude boy. <laughs> Classic ska figure, Satoshi Cone. <laughs> Long hair, zoot suit, switchblade, you don't know where it is. I don't know if he's being rude. I think, I mean, obviously, uh, the character of Moromi is very much, what if Hello Kitty was creepy? Um, mm. Like, and like, the anime is very much like, seems like Doraemon or Anpanmon, like this like very generic like kids figure. Well, not Doraemon's not generic. I love Doraemon, um, but like, yeah, it's like this very generic children's anime that's like has morals every episode. And like, I don't know that he's like necessarily being rude about it. He's just being like, look at this simplistic creation that these people are breaking their bodies and minds like to make for you. Mm -hmm. Like it's like very much about like consumerism in its weird way. And like what we will put people through to give this product. Right. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm like biased because this is sort of how I'm inclined to read a lot of stuff, but I think they're, yeah, I don't think it's like an aesthetic criticism, but I do definitely agree that it's a market criticism. And that in particular, I think is like as close as I've seen in a lot of anime to a sort of like argument about organized labor. Right. Like, I think you could like argue that the subtext of this episode is that there need to be stronger unions in the anime industry or like literally in the unions, <laughs> you know, that it's like the, the voraciousness of Maromi as an idea, but specifically as an idea that like has, is like at the intersection of aesthetic quality and like commercial validity. Cause I also don't think, I don't think the show thinks that Maromi is like ugly. Mm -hmm. Right. I think the show thinks Maromi's that Maromi so is like cute. genuinely right. Yeah. I think, and I think the show and like, like, you know, the perspective of the show is that Maromi is cute, but it's that like, it's in this way that, you know, keeps extracting value and like life and energy from all of these people. And I sort of mm -hmm. wonder, it's interesting to see, because I feel like this is something you see with, like, a lot of people that work this hard, where they, like, slowly start talking a lot about, like, the working conditions in the anime industry. Like, I think that's something that has happened at least a little bit with, like, Yuasa recently, uh, who thankfully did not work himself to death. But, you know, it, 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 that was, like, one of the things I thought about while, when, the first time I watched it. Yeah, I think... Yeah. That like part of the uh the trick of this episode is showing like the the message that Maromi is giving is like take a break you know take it easy take a rest and only one person in the entire office does so and in doing so causes the entire production to kind of fall apart but it's also like no one else is able to take a rest like everyone else is driven by these like insane like they only have two weeks to put the episode together uh, right. The, the deadlines and the crunch is so severe that, you know, all of the other characters that we've seen get attacked by Shonen Bat have like these like 
existential crises about, you know, who they are or what they're supposed to be doing and all, all these like really extreme circumstances. And here it's everyone's job is just so shitty that Shonen Bat just starts go, like going through the assembly line one at a time, not for any sort of like individual personal crisis, but rather just like the structural one of having to make this TV show is so bad that Shonen Bat shows up. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I think that's really an interesting like perspective on it because like, yeah, everybody else has like choices to make or like impossible choices to make. Whereas like here it is really just like, there is no choice. You have to work. Otherwise you're fucking everyone else over and you're going to lose your job. Like it's just like right. a very, it feels very straightforward as like straightforward as the series can get, um, which is not very, um, <laughs> but right. like, and like, I think when we were watching it, um, Eric pointed out that like, Every time they introduce you to a new character, they're like, without this person, the entire project is fucked. And they're just like, <laughs> and then they get, then we immediately see them get like injured or killed. So like the project is fucked. Right. But even though the project is totally fucked, the only way that like the office can like I I express like the continued work on the project is just like, it's like a hit list, right? There's just the names and they just start Xing them out one by one and you know and like we were just talking the climax of that is like peeling the videotape out of out of like the unconscious person's like limp hand i think cone sort of stops short of like asking like a truly radical question but this this is like the piece of the show that feels the most uh li like a labor focused political commentary you're you're correct and i and i i think you you can see that in in like what Maromi says to people is is sinister, right? You should just take a break, right? But like that makes me think of like something that that like I talk about in my workplace, something I talk about like with my partner in 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 her workplace, right? It's um you putting the burden of maintaining the boundaries of work like life balance back on the worker is is a faint right what it what it does is it's like ignoring asking the more pointed question which is like who put you in this position where you feel like you're you're so integral and everything is so high stress that without you uh you, you know this grand design is going to fall apart when clearly it doesn't because you can just get crossed off a list and, and they're going to get a videotape and some corpses and it's going to be fine uh well not fine fine is not the word right but like Fine for Something the bottom be... line is the implication. Yeah. Like, as, as long as the, the videotape arrives at the, the station, it doesn't matter how many corpses pile up along the way. Correct. It's, and and in, in that sense, I really love that about this episode. It seems strange to me that, um, no, not strange. It, it, it's apt to me that, as you mentioned, Shonen Bat showing up in the back of, of uh, the car is like sort of like a direct match to his bit in the Dio episode. Because when we talked about, you know, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, that is one of like the only like pieces of political commentary, maybe that shows up in Khan's Jojo is time warping the Senator back into the, into the driver's seat over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder about Saratug is kind of an interesting character looking at, the the episode from this lens because i think there's ways to maybe 
read like the reason that this episode hates this character so much is that he like isn't working hard enough that he's like the one character that is taking breaks and is like slacking off and i do wonder how much the show kind of wants you to think like if he had more of like the you know bootstraps hard work grind set mentality then everything would be fine but obviously it wouldn't be because everyone else that does have that mentality ends up getting burnt out and getting killed by Shonen Bat. So it's it's an interesting tension there that I'd be curious to hear what y'all think of. I think it's I think that tension is like really earned and organic because I definitely agree like I don't think that Cone is a particularly like political or I, he like sort of is a political artist but he definitely does not think about things like structurally in quite the same way. And I feel like, Chingy, one of the things that we talked about a lot when we were going through the show is the way that he's interested specifically in the ways that people experience things as being simultaneously uh, these, like, broader societal forces and, like, extremely individual Mm -hmm. and, and, like, specifically, you know, like, emotional and, and reacting to specific circumstances. And I think that that tension between these sort of like very individually focused psychological stories and the structures that like cause people to have those experiences is like maybe the most apparent here. And I, I like don't even think, I don't think that he has like particularly well-formed analysis about like how to balance those things. But I think that just like acknowledging that tension and like picking at it feels like a lot more thoughtful than, you know, the way that a lot of other art like approaches this set of questions. So I, I guess I would say like, I, I, I like don't think there's sort of like a broader, you know, like, oh, this is actually how I feel about this. Cause I definitely, it definitely does feel like there's a part of the motivating perspective that like wants people to just like work harder, but then also knows that that's unfair and that tension is what I love about the show, that there's not like a, here's what you should do, or here's what I, you know, think. Yeah, I mean, the whole show is about escapism, like, as a whole, I think is the, like, thesis I came up with when we finished the series. And it's just, like, everybody wants to escape, but, like, it doesn't seem entirely clear what Satoshi Kon actually thinks about, like, escapism. And, like, taking, like, like he's seems torn on the answers to everything and there isn't like a clear option on what to do in a society when you live in a society it seems like he is both critical and sympathetic to all these things but like he doesn't have a i don't think the series has necessarily the most cohesive message and i think that shows through at the end of the series uh Mm -hmm. like with its ending like it's very it's sincere it's like thoughtful but it doesn't necessarily say anything specific i think i don't know i think it is the work of someone who is unsure how they feel and i like it for that Mm -hmm. if if it does have any particular focus or like thesis statement that kind of drives through the whole thing i feel like it's when ikari says like even if the world is like a cruel and unjust place i still have to like live in it i still have to keep yeah exactly And if we apply that to this particular episode, it's like, even if the like working conditions are horrendous and like stressful and 
are causing, you know, all of this like pain inside of the industry, you still have to show up and be a good coworker. You know, you still have to yeah. like not accept responsibility for the things that you do wrong and like make sure that you're doing something that's helping everyone else out that you're yeah. you know, in the job with. I think this particular that perspective shows up in like a ton of stuff mm-hmm. and has started to really bother me where you are like well, here are all these societal problems, but, like, there's nothing we could do about it, so you just have to kind of show up and be, like, good to the people in your life and, like, do your job and stuff. And no one ever or very rarely in this kind of case makes that move to, like, but what if there was something that you could do or what would it look like for you to, like, attempt to actually change these conditions? And I I think there, are like, obviously are some pieces of art that do talk about that and are like interested in, in how to think about that. But that to me feels like, like coming, landing at that place, like always to me feels like a failure of imagination. Mm. Um, and it like super bums me out. Like every time something lands in that place of like, well, there's just nothing that you could do. And it's like, well, that's like not really true, but you know, people's like imaginations are just so limited. And like we've been talking about, really focused on being an individual, right? There's no sense that any of the people working in this this workplace have relationships that would enable them to, like, talk about these issues and be like, how can we all make each other's lives easier? Mm-hmm. I mean, even the guy who is, has a wife, his wife is literally just like, what happened? How are you attacked? I'm, I'm going to be annoying about something because I've been studying uh, Japanese very digil- diligently for the last month, um, trying to finally learn a language I've wanted to learn for a really long time. And like the all Japanese names are bitten, built out of characters. Saruta's name is literally like monkey. Saru mm-hmm. is monkey. So like and that's a thing that Satoshi Kon does a lot in the show. Like everybody, almost every character is named after an animal, except maybe Oda Nobunaga. Um <laughs> And like, well, apparently Ob- they're Oda like, is a dog. So, you know, we, we yeah, around. <laughs> like Harumi Chono uh, is a butterfly. And like, we even see her as like a butterfly demon at one point. Ushiyama mm-hmm. is a cow from the mountains. Like, mm-hmm. and he's like a chubby kid. Uh, there's the guy who looks like a frog. I always forget his name. Um, uh, Kawazu, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. It's a very recurring thing throughout the entire series. Um, and it's just here is like, again, it at its least flattering, just caught like everybody in the sh- this episode is calling this guy a monkey and like, he's animated to look like a monkey, like mm-hmm. is the yeah. thing, his name is like, it is that kind of, I do think it's kind of a little bit that bootstraps thing you were talking about. And also like, I don't know. I think it's, uh, definitely like an unflattering portrait of a worker, but like, everybody in this is unflattering, but I do think it's uh, that lack of imagination that like Eric is talking about where it's just like, yeah, we live in a society and there are all these problems, but what are we going to do about it? Let's just like, okay. But like, I don't know. I feel like there's other places you could go with it, but again, I still really love the episode. I want to thank you both so much. I like, I love the episode too, but like I, I'm so thankful that I've had had you two here with us right now to talk about this because you've both independently just now well articulated the thing that's been stuck in my throat for like almost the entirety of this Satoshi Kon series that me and I are doing, but specifically in in Paranoia Agent. 
and listeners know, I'm, I've been dancing around this for a couple of weeks, like in trying to figure out like, what is it about Cone that bugs me? There, like there is something that bugs me. And, and this is it, is, is, is the weird contradiction of being someone who's clearly a, an incredibly imaginative and thoughtful human, human being capable of like really like emotional expression. Right, like this, we were talking about Millennium Actress, right? This is why I love Millennium Actress. What a, what a triumph of the imagination! I think that film is. I think Perfect Blue also like a triumph of imagination in like really extenuating circumstances. No budget, no time. You've never done this before. The source material is poo poo, and you've you've turned it into something that like even some with very little context for like this specific art form can look at it and not only be entertained. But also, like, say, ah, this is clever and sharp and artful and executed with finesse, um, which is hard when, like, you know, the, the animation budget's chopping. Like, the tools are bad, right? So, Cone's someone who can do all that and, and can't make a better fucking social critique about workplace conditions. Like, it, this, is, this is my problem, right? Is it's like we say... Oh, people don't don't have enough imagination. It, it's I struggle with someone who like makes art that enriches my life and Ian's life and helps me meet new, intelligent, thoughtful, kind people. And we come together here on a forum to to analyze and, and make good use of our time. Right. Someone can provide us all this fucking experience, but can't fucking make a cogent fucking critique about like, what is the nature of capitalist fucking oppression? Even if you reject it, like even if at the end of the episode, he comes to the point of he's like workplace lamentation, workplace misery is bad. However, industry is more important. If he was a centrist fucking dem with a coherent fucking message, I would respect that more than fuck. Isn't this sad? Anyway, next week on Paranoia Agent, uh, like, do you see what I mean? Like, next time, even more fan service. <laughs> yeah, it's it, he. He's dodging the question in some way. Like, I think that that message, which I think is similar to the one that is ultimately imparted in Evangelion, is like maybe useful on a like self-help, personal philosophy kind of level, but. When right. he takes that message and puts it into a place where there are practical solutions that can be made, like there could be a union, there could be like more humane working conditions for for this industry, but instead by repeating this same sort of individualized thesis statement about like having to tough it out in an unjust world, uh, he limits his own imagination in the way that uh, all of you have been so eloquently describing. The Ava pilots should unionize. Well, yes. yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I'm sure Eric has a lot more to say about that. <laughs> I do have a lot more to say about. It. I have 80 pages of comic script to say about it. <laughs> the waiting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I talked about it the last time I was on this podcast. It's, it's good. But in it specifically in because I I. I you know, have not had another sort of professional reason to talk about uh, 3.0 plus 1.0. So I will say, like, I think that the village stuff does actually a really good job of, like, exactly this. Yes, exactly. Right? Of, be, of, of not even in a sort of, like, theory-heavy or, like, over, you know, heavy-handed way of just being, like, 
damn, wouldn't it be crazy if everybody really, like, worked together and built a, a new world and a new way of people being together that was based on, you know, everybody genuinely contributing to meet everybody else's needs. And it doesn't even have to be too much more sophisticated than that. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of why that sequence and why that part of the movie is so affecting to me, because you, you genuinely don't see that that often. And it feels like so much of the, the prior, you know, decades of Ava is like coming up against this problem again and again and again. And then you get this like half hour, 45 minutes. That's just like really approaching the problem from like a totally different perspective. And I, you know, I, I wish we could have gotten uh, a Satoshi Kone work where he, like, even if, again, it's, like, not the same answer, similarly changes his perspective on the problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Just just to dig into Thrice Upon a Time just a bit more since we have it. What's interesting, though, is that even that movie doesn't, has, like, a conflicting uh, solution within the same text. Because the movie ends with, you know, Shinji escaping the fantasy realm of evangelion to become like a you know a working stiff ultimately as in the metropolitan uh, world yeah exactly yeah like emily yoshida when we had her on the podcast to talk about that movie brought up that he basically just becomes a salary man you know and like that's its own like nightmarish hellscape that would cause someone to want to escape into you know a fantasy the way that like say cone is uh describing with paranoia agent so yeah like thrice cannot have but he has a he has a hot wife though <laughs> right that makes it all well, worth it. that's the that's the real <laughs> that's how you escape <laughs> yeah. but but the escape is is in and of itself a fantasy that will spiral you into another labyrinth right but here, let me counter that for you because i've got another read on that i thought about that too and since then i've had another read right and i think this is the other reason why in the context of ava in general like the forest sequence works so well the, the mountain village sequence right mm-hmm. is the first time the series has depicted and articulated a counter argument to to gendo's very effective argument that like the problem of other people is insolvable right that's like that's like his bad guy bars his bad guy bars is other human beings cause pain the pain is inescapable the pain is insurmountable the only solution is is to like detonate reality and turn us all into one omnipresent love God basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And before then the only real like counter you have to that is like, well, that's selfish, right? You don't actually want that for the sake of solving the problem of human suffering. You want that because you miss your dead wife, you fucking loser. Right. Whereas in 4.0 is the first time you get like in credit with Shinji's friends, this counter argument. It's like, well, Yeah. You know, the problem of other people is tough, but we can all like clear sticks in the woods and your friends are going to grow up and become doctors and help people and they're going to have kids. And oh, my God, the environment's fucked up. But aren't babies like little bundles of fucking joy? You want to pinch them on the cheek? Beep, 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 beep. It's a little like it's a little superficial in and of itself, but at least it's like a hopeful vision. Mm-hmm. Right. And what's the last act that Kredit takes before like doing doing the last impact right is they send those seeds off into space they're like we can't save the mountain villages but we can take the tiniest most reproducible piece of it and project that out and hope that something else is going to come of it right right and what happens in the end is those seeds don't happen reality gets folded back into fucking nothingness right the seed that escapes 
is Shinji, right? He's carrying the experience of the mountain village. That's that's Kaji's watermelon seed. The hope is that Shinji's going to come into the modern world and take us out of the Utada Hukaru music video in downtown Tokyo and take us all to like live in a slightly rustic industrial communist utopia in the fucking woods. And we're going to like it. We'll also have Utada Hukaru singing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) We can have We'll also have Utada. (laughs) May they sing for all of us in the rice paddies, in the, in the, in the fucking machine shops. Where's, where's the, um, Taking it back to the beginning of the episode, Kami, Kami hearts, right? Kami hearts. Where's the Where's the goddamn comrade, uh, comrade Misato butt plug? That's That's the sex toy from Evangelion. We need and deserve <laughs> the people's the people's, people's prostate stimulator. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is as good a place as any to uh, to maybe say that we we should probably start wrapping this one up. Um, are there any? Like, I don't even know where that came from, frankly. <laughs> I, like that came out of nowhere. Are there any like lingering thoughts on on these two episodes or on Paranoia Agent that we want to sneak in before signing off? I can't think of anything personally. I I said this when we talked about it originally. But I should just say again, uh, so that I remember to talk about it. I just am such a sucker. And again, this is like bringing in Ava. I'm such a sucker for any animation that then is like, but now the animation is fucked up and you can see the seams. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when that happened, we were like in the chat and I just started like hooting and hollering. (laughs) Um, and and I I you know we definitely don't have time for like this is what this means but I I just love that stuff so much and I love when it's pulled off effectively as I I think it is here um, and also this is just such a fun thing to to think about like with other people because again if the whole if I had watched Paranoia Agent by myself I think for the first time I would have very different responses and also have been much more depressed. Mm -hmm. And it's cool to be able to have the experience of engaging with something that is like a very sort of mentally claustrophobic work, but be like, no, I actually can engage in this with other people. Yeah. I mean, it's well put because it it means a lot to have had, you know, the two of you writing such a great write up on the show and having, you know, watching the two of you bounce ideas off of each other and, it's helps Joseph and I do the same thing. So the fact that y'all were able to come on and do the same with us is it's great. It's honestly like so great to have y'all's uh, perspective on the show and to not just be stuck in the sort of isolated individualist view of, uh, of the show. So thank you guys so, so much for coming on. Anime is back. Anime is back. <laughs> All right. And with that sweet dreams, everyone. Thank you for listening, and thank you in particular to Ash, Four Peoples, Josh Oakley, and Jay for supporting the podcast on Patreon. You too can subscribe at patreon.com slash humaninstrumentalitypod. You can also support the podcast by rating and reviewing on your podcatcher of choice. Your support means the world to us. Thank you.